So I used to attend church with a guy by the name of Les. And Les was a bit of a character. So when someone, he loved meeting new people. So when someone new would walk in the church, he was often in the lobby greeting people. And he would say, hi, my name is Les. More or less. And less is, less is more and therefore I'm less. And people would go, excuse me? And then they'd have a conversation. <laughs> and people always remembered him. And they always remembered his name, and they always remembered that that's less and less is more, more or less. Well, this morning's message is entitled, Less is More. It's not about less. Less has nothing to do with it, actually. Uh, But I always remembered him talking about that. And as I looked at today's text, I went, really, this is a text that tells us that less is more, which most of us would say, well, less is more is just bad math. More is more. Uh, Less is more doesn't make any sense. But there are certain things in life where less is more. Now, today, mostly, we, we, we just want more, right? We look for more income, or we look for more square footage. We want a bigger place to live. We look for more resources, more security, more peace, more status. We're in a world of more. And that, wor- and that more, that preoccupation with more, creates worry because of the concerns we have around that. Those concerns are basic to all of us. We have financial concerns. We live in, I guess, second most expensive city in Canada. And so we wonder, how will we do housing or how would our kids do housing and afford to live here? Uh, We have parenting concerns. We worry about the world that our children will face, how they will navigate that world, what they will be taught, and where that will take them. We have relational concerns. We come here and we wonder, will I fit in here? Is there a place here for me? Will I find community and friendship? Or perhaps if you're interested in marriage, will I find a spouse? We have political concerns as we worry about the decisions that political leaders make, whether that's local, national, or international. Uh, We have socio-political concerns, which has to do with the prevailing ideologies. What are the things that society is pushing us towards? And how does that reconcile with your own thinking and your own beliefs and your concerns around that? What's the result of that? Well, we know from medical reports that anxiety and depression and mental health issues are at an all-time high in North America. And then there's the the physical issues that manifest because of the mental health issues. So heart disease and, and high blood pressure and all those things. So we know that this is true because the physical reality that is being manifested in our bodies and in our hearts and in our minds. So... When we're worried about anxiety, depression, and fear, or that's being created in us, and we're, because of these concerns we have, how do we respond? Well, I think depending on what area of life it is, if we have financial concerns, typically we are going to try and to find ways to create more. So we work harder, we work longer, depending on what kind of job perhaps we have, maybe we add other jobs to it. Or if we can work by the hour, we try and add hours to it. We take extra shifts or, or we try and move into a different uh, kind of employment that will pay more because we're concerned uh, about those things. Or we feel like our job is insecure and so we feel like we have to respond to every request at work. And so we have our phones on 24-7. They're by our bedside. It's the last thing we look at in the evening. It's the first thing we look at in the morning. We're checking email. We feel we're concerned about being disconnected. Uh, there's always this interesting note of panic when someone around you, or perhaps you've been through this, when you misplace your cell phone. 
And you see people go, oh no. And this utter panic covers them. Suddenly I'm going to be disconnected for 20 minutes. What might happen? What decision may be made? Where will I be out of the loop? And we see these kinds of things happen. We put pressure on our children to do right, to think right, to be right, to excel. And so we create pressure that is actually generational. And we see people frantic with worry, afraid to disconnect from work, afraid to not be out of the loop on information uh, streams. Sometimes we chase the latest financial fads in ways to try and make a quick buck, to try and get ahead. Sometimes in society we're being told that you have to pursue every whim that you have and that's how you will lower your stress. And lately we've been told this specifically uh, tied to sexual expression, that you should express yourself however you want and if society is a caring place then no one then you will be uninhibited in that expression. And if you do that, then your stress will decrease. Except we know from statistics that that is not true, that that does not happen. In fact, the anxiety stays exactly where it is. And, and, is, and often for people dealing with those issues, it's at an all-time high. We pursue belonging and identity. We try and find ways to see the, the, the tensions, the anxieties in our life decrease. And the world seems to be spinning faster. It's interesting, even in social media, you'll try and, you'll, people will be saying, well, this is kind of how you're going to find fulfillment. And, and so we joke about the fact that there's this Facebook life that people have as they try and just present this life that where everything is right, everyone's beautiful, everything works out all the time, great experiences. There was one the other day that you may have seen. It, was, uh, it went viral because this gal was chasing this Facebook life, this perfect scenario, this perfect day for her wedding. And, it, and, uh, and so the, the article that I read was this person had wanted this perfect destination wedding and thought the right way to get that experience, that perfect day, was to ask every guest that they had invited to contribute $1,500 to pay for the wedding. So that's what came with the invitation was a $1,500 bill. And the wedding, a destination wedding, was going to cost uh, $60,000. So donate $1,500 and then go fly to the destination wedding. And she thought this was a reasonable request that people could easily afford. And when people started pushing back, suddenly they were incredibly busy that day, and uh, they started pushing back and... uh, and said, sorry, can't make it, sorry, can't make it, sorry, can't make it. Uh, You know, have to wash my hair three times that day. Um, She got very upset. And she thought they were being rude and being selfish. And so uh, the wedding actually was canceled and the relationship broke up. And then on Facebook was a very long rant where she basically assaulted and insulted everyone who robbed her of her perfect day because they were so incredibly selfish. And she said, all I wanted was one day where I could be a Kardashian. (laughs) Was the line. And this was going to bring her joy and peace and something to remember. Instead, she lost her friends, ostracized her friends, lost her spouse or future spouse, and, uh, and actually was read by people all over the world for all the wrong reasons. So as we pursue these things, I, don't, I suggest you do not handle them on Facebook, would be my first suggestion. 
In fact, you might be better off just signing out of Facebook permanently. Well, we say, okay, where is God in this? We know we experience different levels of anxiety, concern, and worry. You have, depending on your situation in life, where you are in your stage of life, uh, uh, what your family situation is, there's different uh, uh, levels of worry, different levels of concern uh, that we have, uh, depending where we are in life. We say, is God present in this? Is God present in our fears and in our worries? Is God present in our concerns? And actually, friends, the good news is there's answers to this. And that the answers to this are not a new idea, not a new app, not a new drug, not a new fad. The answers actually begin at the very beginning of time. Because what you're worried with is not a new thing. It's not like God is surprised by our worries today. And the the answers go back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is where we're going to start today. So Genesis 2 reads, So, The creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. On the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation. So he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. Because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. So God finished creation and he said, I'm going to step back and I'm going to rest and survey the beauty and the wonder of creation. Now, you can't think that God probably finished his six days of work and went, boy, am I tired. Man, that was a lot of work. I don't think the all-present, all-knowing, all-powerful God was worn out from creating the earth. I don't think that was the case. That was not his intent. I think what God was doing from the very beginning of creation, he was instituting a rhythm. He was instituting a pattern of living, a pattern of exuding life that he created in ways that are the most healthy for all of his creation, including human beings. And verse three said, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. So what does it mean to make it holy? It simply means it was set apart. It's meant for a different purpose than the creating ongoing work of the other six. So it says that God set it apart. And that's a theme that that is built throughout the Bible. And prior to the fall of humanity, prior to sin entering to the world, the seventh day was to enjoy creation, the beauty and the perfect nature of creation. After the fall, people became worried. After the fall, all the anxieties that you have began. Food, shelter, clothing, safety, provision. All the same things you worry about today have been worried about since the fall. But then after that point is where God instituted a Sabbath day with his people after he brought them out of Egypt because those people were worried about food, right? They cried out, God, where's the water? God, where's the food? Where's the meat? They were worried about their enemies. They were worried about the Egyptians who had chased them. They were worried about their enemies around them. So they were worried about the very same things that we worry about. Protection, shelter, food, income. It's all the same issues. And so God introduces the Sabbath out of Exodus chapter 20, which we read about in the Ten Commandments, or as Pastor Ray taught us, it actually shouldn't be translated commandments, it should be translated the Ten Words. The Ten Words to God's people. And all of Scripture hangs on these ten. As we're told in Matthew chapter 22, where the the lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? And Jesus answers him, 
there in verse 35 or 37, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what's the greatest commandment? Love God, which is the summary really of the first four. What's the next greatest commandment? Love people, the summary of the next six. But here's the the point that I think is really important for us today. I think the fourth commandment, the fourth word that we're going to take a look at today is the hinge point between the first three and the last six. I think if we don't understand, if we don't apply the fourth commandment, I think we actually cannot live out the first three with our human relationships. We don't actually understand the first three if we don't live out the fourth, and we can't apply them with the following six, which is our relationships with people. So why do I say that? Well, let's dig into it. The fourth word, Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 8 in your pew Bible, it's page 61. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So, so often if you've read this text or heard anything taught about this text, the focus is on the seventh day. But before we get to the seventh day, I think we're actually being taught something about the first six days. And I think what we're being taught about the first six days is the fact that God completed his work in the first six so that on the seventh, there was no more work to do. So in other words, God managed the first six days to complete what was allotted to be done in those six days. And I think what it teaches us in there is that we need to be wise in how we use the six days. Because so often the seventh day is for whatever's left over from the first six. Right? It spills over. And sometimes that happens because of how we've used the first six. We haven't been wise in our time. We haven't uh, prioritized our, our work properly. And because of that, because we got distracted, because perhaps we spent too much time watching YouTube videos or or whatever it might be, we get distracted and then actually it spills over and we pay the price. I'm sure you've had days like that. I know I have. When I said, when I go, man, I had this plan for today and then I let myself get distracted with something and now suddenly I only got half of it done. So now it bumps to the next day and the next day and the next day. And then other, then my relationships start paying the price. And I think God shows us here that he did what he had planned to do in six days so he could rest on the seventh. And as I said, is he resting because he's tired? No. So if you take that piece out of the equation, you know that he has a completely different purpose for the seventh day. So some people would say, well, I don't need to rest because I'm not tired. Well, if that's your point, you're missing the point. It's not about being tired. God was not tired. That's not why he rested. He doesn't say set apart the Sabbath because you've worked so hard and so you need to rest. You should sleep in, take extra naps. So that's not the point of the Sabbath. He's not saying it's for those who are too weak and need extra rest. 
That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying, actually, we want you to set this day apart, make it holy, set it aside. Why? Because God wants you to focus that day, actually, on whatever it is that draws you closer to him and increases your relationship with him. So in other words, feed anything that does that and starve anything that creates greater independence and greater self-sufficiency. And when you do that, then the blessing of the Sabbath can go to every other day of the week. Right? He says, I want you to do whatever it is, set it apart so that it increases your relationship with the Father, so that you know the Father, so that your faith grows in Father through Jesus, so that those activities build that and that actually permeates the rest of your week. It moves you away from self-reliance and increases your love of Christ and your intimacy with God. So do less so that you know God more. Do less so that you know God more. So what are the implications of this? If the Sabbath is for starving independence, it's for starving self-sufficiency, and it's for feeding trust, it's for feeding reliance on God, then how do you do that? Well, I'm not sure what tradition you perhaps come from, if you grew up in church, or perhaps from no tradition uh, whatsoever, and the Sabbath idea perhaps is even a new one uh, for you, because there's many places where where work just goes seven days a week uh, around the world that happens. But God says, I created you for relationship with me, which means he's actually wired you to do that. And it's different probably for each one of us. There's a great little book by author Gary Thomas uh, entitled Sacred Pathways. And Sacred Pathways lists out nine specific pathways, how people engage with God, how their, their faith in God grows, how they express that relationship increasingly. So it's some, a few simple ones that he talks about and he explains. One is naturalists. This is people who engage with God when they're in the outdoors. So if they're walking on the beach, if they're in the mountains, uh, spending time reflecting on God in those contexts, they go, man, I feel so close to God. This is a place where he speaks to me. I read his word here. I pray here. Uh, This is powerful for me. Uh, For other people, there are aesthetics. They love God in solitude and simplicity. Uh, These are people who like to be alone, who reflect on God's word alone who love silence and solitude, and they go, this is the place where I recharge. This is the place that grows my faith. For some of you, it's coming to worship. Some of you, it's music, and you go, oh, I love sitting with a thousand people and singing my lungs out. That just fills my soul uh, with who God is. Others are caregivers, and it's as they're in the acts of service and in caring, it just fills up their spirit and their soul with the presence of God. See, it's not one way for everybody because we're all wired differently. Here's two pieces that work profoundly for me. I do love worship. To me, that's a huge piece of who I am. I spend regular time reading my Bible and journaling every morning. But places that are extra special for me, one's on my motorcycle. And when I'm on my motorcycle, I plug in worship music and I find I pray. And I'm not praying, by the way, because of how I'm driving. Right? It's not the, oh, God, save me. I just find that as things come to my mind, as I'm on my bike and I just, and I pray through stuff regularly, I find when I'm on water, if I get to be on water, uh, I find my soul is just a place that just, it's an extra special place for me. I don't know what those rhythms are for you 
or perhaps even how you were raised. So in my childhood, I grew up in a uh, immigrant church, in an immigrant home, and it was a fairly legalistic kind of place. And so we were, Sabbath was about what you could not do. I could not play sports on Sunday for the longest time. So I'm, an old, I'm uh, the youngest in my family. My siblings are much older than I am. They're out of the house. I'm a little boy. I'm 10 years old. I'm like, okay, can't do that. Okay, can't do yard work. Sounds good. I'm in. You know, can't do housework. Okay, I'm good with that. That works for me. And then I'm 10 years old. I'm 8 years old. And I'm like, okay, I know what I can't do. So what am I supposed to do? It wasn't explained to me. And then what do my parents do? You come from church. They go for a nap. And I'm sitting there twiddling my thumbs, going, okay, I can sneak out and deal with the consequences. That happened a few times. But I'm trying to figure this out because Sabbath was about no, not doing things. And then I'd see my neighbor, and my neighbor would be working in his garden. My neighbor, Mr. Regeer, was a godly man, and he's working, I'm going, wait a minute, he's working in his garden. How does that work? How come that's okay? And, uh, and so I remember talking to him, and he'd say, you know, when I'm in the garden and I'm trying to work at these plants and I'm cultivating them, I'm fertilizing them. It's a place I can reflect on, on my relationship with God and, and on creation. And I look at how things grow, and I know that no matter what I do, it's God that makes them grow, not me. I mean, I can weed and I can water, but it's God that makes them grow. And it actually prepared his heart and his mind for what he did the rest of the week. The rest of the week, he's a high school math teacher. And he said, this complete difference just helped me profoundly every week. It was part of his rhythm all summer. Uh, to recharge himself and to focus himself on God. The point of the Sabbath is to grow, to invest in the things that increase your walk with God, the things that draw you closer to God, and to distance yourself from the things that create self-sufficiency and independence from God. Why? So that when God, the rest of the week, when you're living out the last six commandments, which are all real, relational, you have the strength and the power of God to walk you through those things. And if you don't take that Sabbath, you actually are missing out on that piece. But there's another piece that's, that's uh, I would say, even more important. So there are two places in Scripture where the Ten Commandments are given, Exodus and Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, there's a twist to those Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5 says, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And here's where it departs from the Exodus piece. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So here, the author now is telling us that not only are you there to keep the Sabbath because of creation, to set it apart, and that no one is to do any work. And you'll notice that he speaks to absolutely everyone in society. There is no differentiation between the rich and the poor, between the free and the slave, between the young and the old. He says this is for everyone, absolutely everyone. But then he says this. Remember that it is the the Lord's mighty hand and outstretched arm. In other words, you take the Sabbath because the God who calls you to set apart the Sabbath is the God 
who brought you out of slavery. He's the God who protected you from your enemies. He's the God who provided food and water for you. He's the God who gives you peace. In other words, he's the God you can trust for all the things that you worry about. For all the things you are, not not only does he want to give you rest to follow him, but he wants to give you rest from striving, rest from trying to control your everything around you, rest from trying to do more and work more so that you can somehow try and eke out this living. He says, I want to give you rest from all of that because I am your redeemer. I am your creator. I am your sustainer. I am your savior. He says, I want to give you rest by inviting you to trust me. I want to give you rest by inviting you to trust me. That's why I'm inviting you to set this day apart. And the rhythm that he invites us to, the rest that he invites us to, is a place of rest when we trust God to keep his promises. When we trust God to keep his promises. Taking a Sabbath rest is a statement of faith. Baptism was a statement of faith. The application of the baptism piece very practically to say Jesus is Lord and I follow him is to take a Sabbath rest. To say, God, I actually trust you. I trust you in my need. I trust you in my worry. I trust you in my concerns. I trust you to know what's best. I trust you to know my anxieties around finance or around my children or around the striving that I feel that I need to do. I trust you. I trust you, Lord. I trust you for my welfare. I trust you for my protection. And in the day when this was written, the people of God would have been surrounded by others who work seven days a week, 365 days a year. And to see one people going, why aren't they working today? Oh, they must be crazy. They must be crazy not to be working today. What are they doing? They're going to get behind. They're going to get left behind. They won't be fed. And God says, trust me. So you do less. You do less so you trust God more. You do less so you trust God more. And God continues teaching this principle in the New Testament through Jesus. And in Jesus day, we know that the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders, were following all kinds of rules. They had created more than 600 rules for the people to follow that determined how many feet you could walk on a Sabbath, that could determine how much, many pounds you could lift, that determined absolutely every behavior. And Jesus was basically telling them, you're missing the point because you're missing the lesson of the Sabbath. And so one day, Jesus and his disciples are walking along and they're by a grain field and they start doing their own little harvest. The disciples pick up some heads of wheat And they're harvesting so they can have some grain. And the religious leaders come and they say, hey, your disciples are working on the Sabbath because they're doing this with a few heads of grain. And Jesus says to them in Mark chapter 2, he said, you're missing the point. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So back in Genesis, God institutes the Sabbath for all of humanity because he knows that our rest is in him. And in Exodus, he tells us also that, that the Sabbath is there actually because we need that rhythm of life because he is our redeemer and our protector, that we need relationship with him so that we understand how to be at peace and for that to permeate the other six days of our week. If man was made for the Sabbath, then there would be rules that we should follow. 
then that would be the fair interpretation. Follow these rules. And Jesus says, no, it is the Sabbath that is made for man. So we do less so that we know God more. We do less so that we can trust God more. And that is the place we find peace from our worries. We worry about our future. We worry about our careers. We worry about our children. Then we worry about their futures and we worry about their careers. And it goes on and on. It's like we believe into the lie that people have said to me, oh, this is in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Say, really? Can you show me where that is in the Bible? Because it's not there. It's not there anywhere. It's a lie. Our call is to trust God. And there is no profession, there is no vocation, there is no person who is immune from this. How do I know? Because I as a pastor have struggled with this. So true confession time. We were starting a new church in Calgary, and so it's us and our family and then a few people, and you start buying into this lie as a pastor. Oh, because I'm doing God's work, I need to work seven days a week so that I can bring people to God who will do what? Well, who will give them rest? It's like, wait a minute. I don't trust God to start a church so I can bring people to God who I'm telling telling people is trustworthy. It sounds foolish saying it out loud. But I actually had to catch myself. And then I start asking, well, why do I feel the need to do this? So is it because I feel like somehow I need to add to my worth by working seven days a week for God? And how do you argue? How does my wife argue with me if I'm working for God? That doesn't work very well. So if you're trying to add anything for God to accept you, to love you, to forgive you, if you are trying to think by somehow my activity It'll garner a greater blessing, a greater sense of forgiveness from God. Friends, you know who you're behaving like? You're behaving like people who belong to cults. You know why? Because every cult, every false religion adds human activity on top of whatever way it's trying to, trying to steal teaching from Jesus. It will always add human activity on that so that you can control your own destiny and be acceptable by whatever deity they are referring you to. That's what cults do. So when we say, hey, I'm going to work more than God will love me more. I'm going to work more than God will bless me more. I'm going to work more than God will forgive me more. What we're saying is, God, the grace you extended through Jesus Christ, that's not enough. I have to add to it by my own effort. And the work that Jesus did on the cross, that's not enough either. I'm going to add to it by my own effort. So rather than our work be an expression of God's goodness to us, be an expression of the gifts and abilities and passions God has given us and a response of love to his grace and his goodness, we twist it and then we earn it. We try and earn God's grace and goodness, which is living out the lie of God helps those who help themselves. Don't buy into the lie, friends. Do not buy into the lie. You minimize the grace of God when you buy into that lie. Because God's grace is enough. It covers whatever your sin is. Jesus' work on the cross is complete. It is finished. It's done. And that's why whatever your story is, whatever your sin is, wherever you've come from, God's grace is sufficient. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. And it also means that because of that, you can take rest. You can take rest. The point of the Sabbath is not that you not work because God blesses our work because he gave us work to do. Work itself is not unholy. Work is from God. It's a gift from God. But it's not the point of our relationship with God. 
The point is dependence on him, relationship with him, and taking the Sabbath to grow that with him. And because of Sabbath rest, because of actually the trust you exude and you express in Sabbath rest, it actually is a way of saying to yourself and to God, I trust all of your promises. I trust all of your promises, Father. I trust your forgiveness. It's enough. I trust your grace. It's enough. You can trust God for the forgiveness of your sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is what? He is faithful. In other words, you can trust him. And he is just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You can trust him to finish the work he started in you. Philippians 1, 6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So you can trust him to finish the work in you. You can trust God to bring history to close through his return. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is what? Is faithful. See, Sabbath rest is the expression and the application and the most practical way of all the promises of God. When we reject Sabbath rest, we're really saying, God, I don't trust you. I do not trust you. I got to take care of this myself. I do not trust you. Not in this area of my life. Then how do you trust him in all the other areas of life? How do you trust him for forgiveness? How do you trust him for future? How do you trust him for history? How do you trust him in your children? How do you trust him in all the things that matter most? Now, I know some of you are saying, well, pastor, you don't understand my life situation. And on one hand, folks, I know you're, you're right, I don't. Other than... I don't think your life is that much different than mine. We all have worries. We all have concerns. We all worry about our kids. We all wonder how we're going to make it in a very expensive place. Most of us have the same worries. So I know that way your life is, your circumstance is different, but your life isn't. So let me give you two illustrations to close that have been powerful for me. We were in Saskatchewan two weeks ago for my youngest son's wedding and uh, so we got to uh, spend time there at uh, my uh, in-law's home, which is just outside of Saskatoon. So my in-laws were lifelong farmers. Uh, my wife grew up on the farm. And uh, so every year, for decades, my father-in-law would put a crop in the ground. You know, they'd fertilize it. They'd pray for the right conditions. And then in fall, you, you swath and you harvest your crop. The one thing I know about my father-in-law, I heard this from when I met him over uh, 25 years ago. I heard this from my wife and her upbringing. My father-in-law said, we trust God for our future and for our income. This farm is his, not ours, so we will always take a Sabbath. They never worked on the farm on Sunday, ever. It didn't matter what the weather forecast was. It didn't matter if it's harvest and Sunday was the best day to start and Monday looked bad. He said, no, God will care for us, and he did. Decade after decade after decade after decade. And of course, when you live on the farm, you're so aware that having a good crop is outside of your control. We say, well, we don't have to worry about that. I work inside. The rain won't stop me. Nothing will stop me because I work inside. So an illustration closer to home. I have a friend here in Vancouver who owns a restaurant, he and his wife. And of course, common thing, many people here own restaurants. And, and we know that in restaurants, often your busiest days are weekends. And my friend who owns the restaurant here in Vancouver, his location I would say, is even more weekend-sensitive uh, simply because uh, it's in a high-tourist location, lots of weekend traffic where it is. And, uh, and so after he and his wife, they became Christ followers, and they're processing all this stuff. 
And long story short, they came to the place where they thought, you know what? We think it would honor God if we close Sundays. And so as they're processing this, people are saying, you're crazy. That's foolish. That's, that's uh, you know, that's a big day. Uh, you know, close some other day. He said, no, I think the Lord's calling us to close Sundays. And so they did. Uh, December of 2015, they closed on Sundays. And they had, as I said, they had customers mad at them. They had staff mad at them. They said, no, we think God's calling us to do this. As staff, go invest in your family. Go spend time with your families on that day. And so I said, man, that's a big decision you made. I said, what did it cost you to do that? He said, 30% of our income. So we lost 30% immediately. I went, wow, that's quite something. So that's three years ago. So I heard the story a year ago. And so as I knew I was preparing for this sermon, I sent him a note and said, hey, tell me how it's going and, uh, and how God worked in this. So he gave me the full story. And, uh, and I saw him last week and I said, okay, just make it clear for me. What, was, uh, what is the first thing that hits your mind in terms of the impact of that decision on your life? He said, oh, it's easy. The first thing that struck us is the peace that we had. We were so overwhelmed by God's peace as soon as we made that decision. We had peace and we had rest immediately. We, weren't, we were no longer running around on Sundays trying to get out of church and go and open the restaurant. It was great for us and our children. Uh, it was, we just had overwhelming peace. And then he sent me a note uh, the next day uh, that I want to read for you. He said, what the Sabbath did for us, or better said, the fruit as a result of the obedience and trust is the abundant joy and gladness of being in the presence of God. All confident and bold through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the exciting opportunity of what God presents to us as adopted children to participate in his affairs through the personal conviction of God's story in us. Praise the Lord. That was his response. Then I said, you know, my curiosity, I said, okay, tell me today, how's your income three years later? He said, oh, we make more today in six days than we used to make in seven. Now, I had to ask him for that. He didn't, that wasn't, when I said, what are the benefits? He never talked about that. All the benefits were relational and spiritual and personal. Now, the beauty of Sabbath rest is that uh, God doesn't care which day of the week you take. God doesn't care which day of the week you take. He says, set aside a day. Set aside a day. The point is not, is it Sunday? Is it Saturday? Is it the weekend? My friends did what they were being obedient to God's leading in their lives. But God doesn't care which day of the week you take. The point is to set aside a day. The point is to grow that and invest in that which grows your heart with God, your experience of God, your trust in God, and to starve that which creates self-sufficiency and independence and takes you away from God. And then that Sabbath, that fourth word, is that bridge point between the first three commands, which are all about God, and the last six, which are all about people. And because of Sabbath rest, actually, the reality of the presence of God permeates all your relationships and runs throughout the rest of the six days of the week. It's the beauty of what God instituted back in Genesis because he knew us. He knew our situation. He knew what we'd be worried about today because it's the same thing that people have worried about for centuries. And God's invitation to you, friends, is into his rest. Now, for some of you, that might mean big adjustments. I don't know. But God is gracious in that too. 
He just keeps inviting you, know me more, trust me more, take the next step. Know me more, trust me more, take the next step. Rearrange your week to get your work done bit by bit. Take the next step. My right arm is not too weak, says the Lord. I am faithful. I am your redeemer, your sustainer, and your friend. And I have given you rest. And Jesus, or before that, I think it's the application of David's psalm in Psalm 127, which says, Without the help of the Lord, it is useless to build a home or to guard a city. It is useless to get up early and stay up late in order to earn a living. God takes care of his own even while they sleep. If you don't create the space to grow in your flock with God, you try and do this without God, and he tells you that to build a home without the Lord is useless. It's toil without reward. And we know that Jesus' invitation to all of us is to rest. He said, if you are tired from carrying burdens, come to me and I will give you rest. Take the yoke and I I give you. Put it on your shoulders and learn from me. I am gentle and humble and you will find rest. That is the heart of our Father for us. Let's stand in clothing prayer. If you've never made a decision personally to walk in God's rest, uh, I would love to do that with you today. If you'd, I'd love to talk to you afterwards and pray with you for that. Or you can go to our welcome center, which is just outside uh, the doors here. People would love to pray with you. Also, if you're struggling uh, with anxiety or struggling with uh, this challenge of creating rest, of trusting God, again, I'd love to pray with you or the folks in the welcome center as well uh, would love to do that. We want to walk together in healthy ways to pursue the rest of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that from the very beginning of time, you knew what we would struggle with in 2018. And from the beginning of time, you instituted a rhythm of rest, to set apart a day, to keep it holy, to rest, to spend greater times in intimacy with you, enjoying your creation, recognizing that you are sovereign, you are our redeemer, you are you are our savior, you are our sustainer, you are our rest. And so, Father, for those who are living in anxiety here today, Father, I pray for your rest. For those who are struggling to keep up uh, with income, I pray for your rest. Father, I pray as they give things to you, you will reveal yourself to them. And as we walk together as the people of God, we will carry each other and support each other in this journey. Father, I pray that as we grow in trusting you and faith in you, we will apply that to our lives so practically in ways that create rest, that we set aside a day to grow in you as we recognize the way you've created us and find the pathways to do that, whether it's reading your word or in worship or in service or in nature, whatever it might be, Father, that we would grow in rest and we would enjoy the peace that comes from trusting you, living in your promises, and walking in your rest seven days a week. 365 days a year. So Father, go with us as we go this place, from this place, and that we would walk in your rest and we would exude your rest to those that we come in contact with. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.